Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. I'm delighted to be here today with a longtime mentor, a man I've learned very, very much from in, over the course of my life and continue learning as I'm sure I will today. This is John Sinclair from Detroit, Michigan, famous for the song John Sinclair by John Lennon, uh, famous for the Free John Sinclair concert, famous for his social activism, famous as the manager and kind of visionary of the MC5 and many other things. And I know there was another band called The Up that your brother managed, but you guys worked together on. But John, we'll cover a lot of things but I want to welcome you and thank you for joining me. And I, it's a treat for me to share with the young people in our network, one of my greatest teachers, and you certainly are that. So we begin, as I said, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. We're in that place where we're looking at the economy, we're looking at society. It's supposed to be a tool, the market, the economy, to be a tool. but. A lot of people are concerned about how it's been functioning for many years and are acutely concerned right now. And I'll turn to an essay that you wrote about the relationship between music and the pressures of money and finance in, I believe it was 1970 or 71, and uh, in a book called Music and Politics that you co-edited with the man, was it Richard Levin? And, uh, and I think your, your chapter, the one that caught my, this caught my eye when I was in high school, uh, Motor City Music. And one of my favorite quotes came from Leroy Jones, a man who later wrote an introduction to your book, Fat and Frogs for Snakes, which I had the pleasure of making a recording of the first part of that, the Delta Sound with you for the Rooster Blues label. But I don't want to go on. I want to get to Leroy Jones, who became a Mira Baraka. He said, this news music, it's cooled off when it begins to reject blank, any place, universal humbug. It is this fag or that kook, and not the fire promise and need for evolution into higher species. The artist's resources must be of the strongest, purest possible caliber. They must be truest, straightest, and deepest. Where is the deepest feeling in our lives? There is the deepest and most meaningful art and life. Beware the golden touch. It will kill everything you used to love. You dig? That's pretty strong stuff. High school, high school kid, I had to fasten my seatbelt to read that paragraph. <laughs> but uh, tell me, John, you know, you, you were very involved with the scene, founder of the White Panthers Party, Detroit Artists Workshop, working with many of the bands, MC5, the Stooges and others, the Grandy Ballroom. How do, you, how do you see how economics 
affects or refracts what music could do to nourish society? Well, you know, music made a big change in the 60s and then they bought it off. Since then, music hasn't really, popular music hasn't really advanced civilization in any way that I can see since about 74. Do you, do you feel that it's gotten, so there was a, a window of opening in the 60s that then closed again? 72, really to 69. Woodstock was a turning point because that's when they realized what a market it was, how great and huge the market for this music was. Before that, they tried to pawn us off as being a little phenomenon that only weirdos like this kind of music. And pretty soon there's half a million people in the rain in a field, and they had to except that this was a big thing, and then they decided, figured out how to buy it off, and they, we started this other great thing called underground radio, FM radio, in the late 60s, and this played this new music once it started being recorded. You know, we didn't have a hit with our music until 67. They started playing that around 63, 64. I didn't have a hit until Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love in the spring of 67, and then Light My Fire by the Doors in July. I do remember uh, you telling me, you grew up what, up near Saginaw, is that right? I grew up in Davidson, Michigan. I was born okay. in Flint. And then uh, you told me that, as is often the case, the strong stations at night, particularly when it's cloudy, you can hear from other regions. So while there is Detroit music, I remember you telling me about hearing particularly black rhythm and blues early on uh, when you were curious and looking around the radio dial for things that came from elsewhere. Yeah, there was a great station called WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. And at night, they played rhythm and blues. Each of the programs was sponsored by a mail-order record shop. Uh -huh. So you could order the records that you heard on these programs to be sent to you through the mail, which served the entire rural south, where people wanted to have records, but they didn't. you'd have to go to Jackson, Mississippi, or either Memphis. You couldn't find a record in between there, you know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. So they had a mail order thing. And this station was part of 50,000 watts. And they broadcast all over. The, a lot of people I know listen to them on the East Coast, in Ohio, Michigan, Illinois. You could get them in all those places. In the West, it was Wolfman Jack coming out of XERF in Mexico. He was the guy who had the huge spread of music. So we never heard of Wolfman Jack where I was. Yesterday I read a master's thesis by my former Arfus partner and friend Susan Dotis. Her husband, Jeff Jones, used to run the Dylan catalog at Sony, and now he runs the Beatles catalog. And Susan at NYU wrote one of the most beautiful master's thesis about the city of Liverpool and how the music got to there. 
and they, they called them the Cunard Yanks. They were people who worked on ships that went to New York and bought records and even bought jukeboxes and brought them back and held house parties in Liverpool. So, so that, that music, that spirituals, gospel, blues, rhythm and blues was, how would I say, touching on Liverpool because it was a global port and many of the merchants brought it over. London also, you know, Mick Jagger and Brian Jones met on a tram or a bus, and one of them was Brian Jones was carrying a chest 78. <laughs> and that's how you saw these records. Somebody brought them that he had gotten from a sailor. Yeah, yeah, but they, uh, particularly the powerful music that came from the African-American community, fighting for its freedom, defying, as the great James Cone wrote in his book, The Spirituals and the Blues. He said, the spirituals you wrote about the afterlife because you were in chains, but the blues, that was different. You were allegedly free even though you weren't free. So you had to defy the world in the here and now in a, in a code as our uh, artist Willie King, who I know you knew and, and liked, used to tell me, he said, they, he, he did this essay with me, an audio essay called The Boss Man and the Baby. He said, when you're playing in the juke joint, you're not talking about the oppression of the boss man. You're talking about the oppression of your romantic partner. And everybody that's dancing in that club knows you're talking about the boss man. But even the boss man's thinking about whether he's getting along with his wife or not, and he's dancing too, but the joke was on him. Well, I, I, I have to say, you know, you and I worked on your movie, 20 to Life, with uh, Steve Gephardt. We worked on Fat and Frogs for Snakes, the, the Delta Sound record. But I don't think I would have ever been in the place where I could have seen the energy and the import if I hadn't been exposed to two things, the Rainbow Room and this book called Guitar Army that when I was 14 years old, I got a copy of and the recommended readings at the back, I call that the counterculture curriculum of America. And there were things about Coltrane, there were things of spoken words, all the Flying Dutchman records, Robert Shear. It was just, it was stunning to me. Through college and through graduate school, I kept going back to it and finding more and more and more. And you you gave us that roadmap. We called that the White Panther reading and listening list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, how would I say? You had that little purple button with the White Panther on it. Music is revolution. And uh, you gave us a taste of it with Sun Ra and Archie Shepp and Pharaoh Sanders and, the, and John Coltrane. And uh, I did see in your, uh, your essay, you were talking about, I think it was how beautiful and authentic the MC5 was. And you said it was natural. The MC5 related so strongly at one time to the music of Sun Ra, Archie Shepp, train Pharaoh Sanders because they were to rock and roll with those brothers are to jazz music, the extension into the post-Western future. 
and then you quote saying that was Leroy Jones term, the post-Western future. I have to tell you a story. My landlord in the West Village at one point was Elliot Hoffman, who was a lawyer in music, and he represented Coltrane, Stan Getz, UB Blake, and Pete Townsend and the Who. And I used to go down and hear his war stories late in his life, and he said that Coltrane, on his last tour in Japan, Elliot and his wife, Nancy, went with them. He said they played, I believe it was 16 events in 17 days. It was just before Coltrane was clearly diagnosed with the uh, cancer of the liver. And he died the next year. But in this trip on Japan, Elliot told me the story about one night, Coltrane came up to him and said, we cannot be abiding by the Western canon of music. We have to go, when I look at the Black Panthers, when I look at all of the oppression, we have to go to a new place. And he'd been reaching out to Ravi Shankar and Indian music and, and Eastern tonality, as he called it. He was very close in New York City with Yusuf Latif and Olatunji. And the three of them got together and they were going to open a joint together, but then Coltrane died. But what Elliot told me was at dinner in Japan. He said, we have to get ready for our concert. And you and your wife, I love you. You'll always be my lawyer and my companion. But you have to sit at a different table because we're trying to transcend white culture. and We can't be even unconsciously deferential. Would you mind? And he'd apologize before and after every meal that they would sit apart. It was only the meal that was just before the concert. But they were so energized. And when I look at that little quote, the extension into the post-Western present future, that's where those guys were going. And that's what it sounded like to me from the turbulence and the dirt and the tension of Detroit. That's where you, you you envisioned in that essay, that's where the MC5 was headed. Oh, yeah. Well, they were our mentors. We followed them. They were trying to figure out a way to do what they felt within the context of the musical environment that existed. And we, we followed that approach. How did you come across the MC5? How, how did you meet them? Well, I met them because they had moved into our neighborhood around Wayne State. Some were living over on Canfield between 2nd and 3rd. Some were living on Prentice and 3rd. Anyway, they were around our neighborhood. I was in the Detroit House of Correction in 1966 for six months in Maryland's possession. I was released on August 5th. The next day they had a big welcome home party for me called the Festival of People. And friends of mine came from all over. Joseph Jarman was here at this time. <laughs> we were very close friends. And um, so they had all the poets and musicians for hours and hours, and this band that had moved into a neighborhood called the MC5, they wanted to play too. And so they were there, and I met them, and then they went on and 
I retired about one or two o'clock to be with my wife and catch up on my sex wife. And the music kept on going, and about four o'clock, the MC5 went on. And they were so loud in this little bitty place that we had at Forest and at Warren and the town lodge that uh, my wife Lenny at the time got up and went downstairs and said, too loud, we can't afford to be raided. So we started off on kind of a bad foot, but then I went and saw them at the Michigan State Fair of 66. They played their Jerry Goodwin, if you remember him? Keener, great, great guy. He was a disc jockey. And, you know, in those days, the disc jockey hops would have bands as guests, but they would lip sync their record. Very rarely would you have a live performance by a local band unless it was in a teen club. So. <laughs> I saw the MC5, they played live at the Michigan City, and they were just fucking killer. <laughs> it was just unbelievably great. And so I became a huge fan, and I never missed a chance to hear them. And then uh, a month later, they opened the Grandy Ballroom. When you say they opened, was that the beginning of the Grandy Ballroom? That it was opened and they were one of the first acts there, if not the first? Wow. They were the house band. Mm -hmm. They played there at least once a week. I mean, they were open Friday and Saturday nights. They played there either the Friday or Saturday. If they had another gig, they wouldn't play there. They would play that other gig, but... Mm -hmm. I, re I remember uh, people like The Who and Cream and other famous bands also played at the Grandy Ballroom for too long. That was starting the next year. The next year, I see. Was that in part because they were inspired by the MC5? The first year it was all bands from Detroit and Michigan. From October until September. Or August. August 67, the Grateful Dead came on their first tour. And they were the first ones to come to the Grandy. And then Russ... I don't know, somehow became friends with some English people. And so he brought all the English groups that were breaking in England. Nobody had ever heard of here. So he could pay him 500 bucks or something on an airline ticket. And they would come and play the grand. I'm talking about the Small Faces, Jeff Beck Group, The Who. The Who didn't have a record out when he had The Who. You know what I'm saying? He brought people who were musically advanced, but nobody, they didn't have a record. It wasn't based on hit records, let me put it bluntly. It was based on, I heard this band was really good. And what, what was your experience with trying to take them out of Detroit? Like you've said in this essay that I've been quoting, they, they reflected organically Detroit. But how were they received in San Francisco or Los Angeles or other places? They hated us in San Francisco. The regular hippies, they hated them. But other people really liked them. So we, had, uh, we couldn't, and Bill Graham blackmailed us. 
They wouldn't, let, right? us, wouldn't let us play the Philmont, even on the mm. benefit. So we played in Golden Gate Park, and the people went nuts up there. And they really, really loved us in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. They're crazy about some Well, I enjoyed so much your your writing in this essay, the one I mentioned that I read in, on, on Motor City Music, how you contrasted the environments, the context in which the music was created, the difference between the relationship between what you might call concert goers, band members, and law enforcement was very, very marked, and it reflected in the edginess of that Detroit music. And uh, it, was, uh, it was really quite, I mean, what you, you really um, shared with us that music wasn't just some concoction in a vacuum for a market. And the contrast between San Francisco and Detroit, the lifestyle, they're, they're within the same country, but they might have been on different planets. But but the impetus was the same. The hippies in San Francisco started playing this music because it reflected and expressed the way they felt and thought. There was no market for it. They played it because this is what they wanted to do. The airplane, the Big Brother and the Holding Company, Country Joe and the Fish, Quicksilver, all these bands. None of them had a record contract. They weren't out to make millions of dollars. They wanted to play in a dance hall where people that looked like them and got high like them could dance. And that's what they did. And then it caught on because it became, it was so popular, it was so much fun. And of course the drugs helped too, you know. (laughs) I remember in this essay you threw a little elbow at the uh, concert promoters too, saying that they started putting people $15 in a seat because they could pack more people in, make more money. But what what were you doing not being able to dance? Why, why did they, they, they used a money capture of seated concerts rather than like what you might call an open general admission ballroom? Festival seating, they called that. Yeah, yeah. No chairs. So when you look at, when you look at now, I guess one of the reasons I, I reached out to you, John, is that I don't know really anyone that's not quite concerned, if not distressed right now, about the pandemic, about the social relations, about the climate challenges and dangers, about the risk of nuclear war that people like Daniel Ellsberg talk about as tension between the US and China and Russia heats up again. You're, I've often viewed music like because of my focus on the blues is like this emission. It's it's a smoke signal that emanates from the spirit of people as to what is going on. Do you see this as a time where musicians will be called to action again and step up and what you might call share with us a poetic truth that gives us some guidance? Or do you think that it's been swamped by the commerce system and isn't able to provide that? I think that they don't know what it is. You have more artists like this. All this stuff is driven by the individual. The 60s, the musical breakthrough was 
It was driven by individuals who were motivated by what was going on inside of them. They were seekers of truth, they were readers, they were people who went to art galleries, they painted, people who knew who Miles Davis was. <laughs> you know, they got people today, they call them hipsters, they don't know who Miles Davis was. Miles Davis was like God of hipsters. He's like, you said you were a Christian and not know who Jesus Christ was, you know. I know I, I I'm I'm proud to say I have a friend who really loves you and your work who called me last night from Detroit to tell me he's reading Eric Neeson's book about the making of Kind of Blue. So so there are some people still seeking out the beautiful insights that Miles Davis shared with us. Who's the guy that wrote that book? It's not Eric Neeson. I know this guy he's from Cincinnati. He wrote the book on a love supreme. He wrote the history of Impulse Records. Is that is that uh, Ashley Khan? Yeah, I know him. I know him. Yeah, I like yeah. him. I haven't seen him in about five or six years. But quoted by Ashley in his book about a love supreme, when he explained that Impulse, when they devised the gatefold records as their signature. So we like the gatefold records and mostly because you could clean your joints on these gatefold <laughs> records when you used to have seeds. Remember when they used to have seeds that you weed? You buy ounce of weed and there'd be four seeds. So you had to take your impulse records and dump the weed up there and the seeds were all rolled out. <laughs> I I'm, I'm, want to bridge to something that's a very important part of you, because we've been focusing on music and we interacted a lot in that regard, but there's another dimension of arts where you've had a very profound impact and you just crossed it when talking about Coltrane and that's poetry. You were a friend of Allen Ginsberg, I know. He came to the Free John Sinclair concert and, and you have written books Yes, songs of songs of praise about Coltrane, Thelonious, a book of Monk, uh, all kinds of well, fattening frogs for snakes, or all kinds of things, where you've gone with the poetic. And uh, I uh, I ordered a book that came in the mail today. By a man named John Fox. It's called Finding What You Didn't Lose, Expressing Truth and Creativity Through Poem Making. And I thought I thought of you when I ordered that book last. I ordered it, I ordered it the other night after watching you on the uh, David Marsh show, and it and it came today. I got it out of the mailbox half an hour before we started. But but this notion of awakening, which you might call the poetic dimension. People can learn a lot from you. There's there's audio things, but when you were talking about Coltrane just now, I brought into my mind, I think it's on Songs of Praise, I Talk With Spirits, which was a poem, which really got to the essence of him, like when I read the liner notes to A Love Supreme, about his reverence for the transformations of his own life. And uh, but, but tell me a little bit, how did you become inspired to be a poet? Oh, I don't know. I was in college, and they turned me on to Howell by Allen Ginsberg. 
and Pictures of the Gone World by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Mm. They were in the little pocket poets editions. This is 1959 in the fall when I started college. And they just fit in. And oh, I really, I read On the Road by Jack Kerouac when it was released. I turned 16 the next month after it was released. Yes. And it was a best selling book. I didn't really read his poetry. I've never really been a huge fan of his poetry. But his prose, I'm a fucking maniac about. And then he led me to Allen Ginsberg and I read Howell and then that was it. Before that, you didn't want to have anything to do with poetry. <laughs> on your show, you have a program on Radio Free Amsterdam online. Do you do poetry sessions as well as, as musical sessions or has that primarily been devoted to music? Well, it's primarily devoted to music. I play poetry and other, you know, I got 12 disc jacks. I put up two hours of original programming every day. I'm in my 16th year. Wow. <laughs> you, so you got stamina. <laughs> I put it on the 24-7 stream and I learn music that I want to hear. There's no nice. bad music. There's no commercials. There's no news. There's no spots. Just, just Jackie's telling you what they played. And then there's some poetry, and there's some conversation. I got a couple of shows that are done by weirdos, and they put a lot of weird shit in it, you know? And I think that's good. How else is somebody going to hear some weird shit? It's not going to be on TV. It's not even going to be on YouTube. Nice. Nice. And you're, uh, in your own inspiration, who are, the, who are the poets that moved you? I know we talked just momentarily about Allen Ginsberg, but who, who's, who's your pantheon of poets that young people who are watching this might be turned on to? Oh, I think Allen Ginsberg, Juan Getty, who just died at the age of 101. Juan hmm. Getty. My personal mentor was Charles Olson, Robert oh, Creeley, yeah. Robert Creeley, Mary Baraka. Those were my main people. And then after that, Gary Snyder, Robert Duncan, Phil Whalen, all the San Francisco poets. Mm -hmm. And then New York, Gregory Corso, John Wiener, Herbert Humphrey, and those guys. I, I grew up as a son of a sailor on Lake St. Clair and around the Great Lakes and uh, ended up traveling all over the world. So Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, got under my skin too. That, uh, and that's a long one. And that, that one has, that portends or foreshadows a lot of problems between the relationship of humans to environment. Because the uh, killing the albatross and, and destroying the wind in the southern seas and uh, the ancient mariner wearing that burden it's not too far from some of the concerns people have today in the realm of climate. <laughs> but uh, in, the, in the musical realm, that book Songs of Praise was reverent. It was poetic, but reverent about Coltrane. He was God to me when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I have, I have, I treasure in my office at home, I have two pictures. 
One is with you, and it's the, one of them is, is you and John Coltrane in Detroit that your former partner Lenny took. And another is Coltrane on stage with Thelonious Monk at Cobo Hall in 1966. I guess a snowstorm, and Lenny took that one too. Those are the same night. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, Coltrane came here for a concert, and Monk's group was on the bill, and they had a terrible snowstorm on the East Coast, and the planes couldn't fly out. Train had taken the train from Philadelphia and his wife and his band. And Monk had got to Detroit somehow without his van. The way it's the other way around. Monk had his band, and Coltrane had to use Monk's rhythm section. Wow. <laughs> wow. Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison couldn't miss the train plane because of the snow. Yeah, so they played together. I saw that. I was there. And we had just published the first issue of our paper called Gorilla. And a guy called Alan Van Newport made that. Well, the, uh, and, and, and that poetry that I got a recorded, I got two uh, discs from you at one point while we were working on your film, uh, 20 to Life. One was called Fly Right, and the other was The Book of Monk, Volume 1. Yeah, it never uh, came out. I'm sorry, say again? Flyright never came out. Is that right? Oh. It was my first recording project that I did with Ed Moss out of Cincinnati, a piano player. Gebhardt produced it. We couldn't get the okay of the Monk estate to use his songs. Mm -hmm. I cut that album again with a piano player in New Orleans named Tom Moore. Ah. Uh, let, me, let me ask you how you're seeing the politics of today. Do you are do you see the tumult of the last year? Are you hopeful? Or are you terrified? Where are you? Where are you seeing? Where we're... I've been okay. terrified okay. all my life, and it's even worse today. Uh -huh. If we wouldn't have elected Joe Biden president, I'd really be flipped out. I don't know how we lived through the four years of that asshole, but we did it. When we made it. Yeah, and many people are disturbed. I have hope that he will, this guy will be able to put in the stuff that Trump took out. If we get back to zero of Obama, that will be a good thing. Yeah. I thought Obama was still thrilled to have a black president, but he was very conservative. Yeah, you almost have to call him a conservative Democrat. Well, at one time in your life, I read an essay yesterday in preparing for this again. You were uh, at Jackson State Prison. And I believe Jerry Rubin and John and Yoko and Archie Shepp and Stevie Wonder and all kinds of people came. And you, you talked in this uh, interview that I read, I think it was an Ann Arbor newspaper, uh, about how you had gotten to using your call to your wife, your weekly call, and you got to speak to the Free John Sinclair concert, and then you were terrified that they would come down on you for having done that. But, but how did it feel to have all of these people and all of these artists come, like, come to your side, to come to your assistance and work 
what you might call create a kind of meta pressure and activism which involved changing the rules about penalties for the use of marijuana and you got out of prison I think three days after that concert but that did that I mean I remember you once told me that uh, you thought that the changes in the legislature predated the concert but nonetheless the, 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 you could see people rising to your side and, and can we imagine now a public rising to address some of these major concerns in a way that we might call is, is an energy other than money that starts to push things in a healthier direction? Well, you got the Black Lives Matter that's trying to deal with the police mm -hmm. slaughter of innocent citizens. But Black Lives Matter is like a kindergarten version of the Black Panther Party. So it's really a regression from our day. I'm glad to see them doing something. You know, it's so hard to get them to do anything for longer than a TV program. They had that great thing called Occupy. And that's why I got excited about that, and I took part in some of them. I was in New York, London. I did things with Occupy Detroit. But then after six months, they completely disappeared. Completely. And that's what I'm wondering what's going to happen. When they started marching in the streets after they killed the black people, I thought, well, this is something that's interesting for a few days. But they're still doing it, so I'm, I'm you got to keep doing it. It's a lifetime issue. You're talking about your life and the quality of your life and what they're going to make available to other citizens. It's the seriousest shit that there is. What are they going to do next? What are they going to let us do? What are we going to come up with as an idea of what we should do? These are the things that we have to have our mind open to, I believe. Now, I know you have children. It's daunting being a parent now. My daughter. My daughter's yes. 54 today. <laughs> yeah, but, but handing the ball off in the world of climate change and domestic turmoil doesn't feel good. We got we to gotta keep, the older generation has to keep fighting for this. The speedboat because of things like this and the internet. But really, they just use it for trivia for the most part. And then the problem with a TV is that they had you surrounded with that little square TV set. Now you got one they carry around your hand. It's with you at all times. So it's hard to escape. They got them locked in to this fucking world of commerce and consumption. And doing what they say when they say it. You got to break through that. If you don't, it's just going to get worse. I can't say it's got to, you got to break it. I don't have the least bit of optimism. Well, you know, both, how would I say, both you and I, I was more a child, but we lived in that cauldron called Detroit. And I often tell people that. I felt like, as a young person, I watched the United States divorce Detroit. That after the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, there wasn't going to be an assistance to a black-governed or black-majority city in the North. 
because Southern Democrats were terrified. And there was all the turmoil related to the transformation of the auto industry and the segregation and everything else, not to mention the Vietnam War. Obviously, the Port Huron statement came from the neighborhood not far away. But that cauldron called Detroit was almost like a canary in the coal mine for the things that are stressing globalized America in many, many places now. And we each endured a great deal of pain and what we call diseases of despair among many people whose lives were crushed. And uh, yeah, and so I, I guess when I listen to you saying perhaps, you, you know, you're not optimistic, there, we, we lived in a very unresponsive to our distress world for quite some time. And you were at, at the vanguard of that. I was trying to figure out, I remember when I first went into a uh, economics class, and I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. I thought at the time I was going to be a boat designer. And the guy started talking about equilibrium. And I put my hand up and I said, isn't that like assuming a happy ending? I mean, I had no basis for being in Detroit for thinking that things went to an equilibrium. True that. So is there any music, film, or poetry on the horizon, meaning recently created, that you find inspiring that you point people toward? Well, I listen to a lot of stuff. You know, like I said, I got 12 disc jockeys. They do, they're like the guy that does the blues show on Sunday nights on the college station for the last 30 years. I got him, Kerry Wilson. I, I got uh, Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Pingree of New Hampshire. He's been doing this 35, 40 years. Wow, wow. He's just he's like Leslie Karras out of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does Steve Cushing still do Blues Before Sunrise? That She's on the same station with him. I see. I see. Hey, okay. one, six hours. Five hours. Nice. So you're keeping the you're keeping the flame alive for all of us that can find our way to get a taste. I'm saying huh? this to say that they all keep up with all the stuff that comes out. So I hear a lot of recent releases, and I like. There's a lot of it I like. Nobody, yeah. on, there's no Muddy Waters or John Coltrane, but there's interesting yeah. music. Well, my understanding from my recollection is that uh, you and Bob Dylan were born in the same year, and you're both approaching a major birthday that we can celebrate, I believe in your case in October. Bob Dylan is, is the 24th of he this is, month. Yeah, well this month. Yeah, he's, he's 24th of May. And, uh, but I remember being at some of your birthday parties and seeing all kinds of people like Don Was and Betty Levette and everybody celebrating that vitality that you bring in that intersection between arts, meaning poetry and music, and politics and the inspiration. Uh, and, and I'm sure this year it's going to be an excellent party again. I'll be 80. Do you get back to New Orleans at all? Well, I haven't since the pandemic, you know. Yeah, I remember you used to run a beautiful radio show at WWOZ, and uh, you were 
uh, when I'd come down there around the time we were making fat and frogs for snakes together and uh, uh, New Orleans was a stirred up place. I don't know if I told you, but to bring another box set of four vinyl albums. Oh, is that right? So I'm really, this is a culmination of my life's work. Yeah. So I think you should, I'm going to challenge you to write an introduction to that. And I'll call it Letters to a Young Activist and Artist. Like Rumi's Letters to a Young Poet. Uh, and uh, and keep, keep giving us instruction, John. Keep giving us the... Not give us the, yes the insight, but the example, your unrelenting vitality. Here, almost eighty years old. We all have to have some of that. I don't quit. <laughs> <laughs> but when I talk to young people, I have one preachment, and that is to say, you have to take the vow of poverty to be an artist in today's world. Mm. You could break, you could get paid, but that's not going to be a, it's not a, really a possibility. You aren't going to get paid, so you got to do this out of the power of what's going on inside of you. Yes. And that, and since you aren't going to get paid, you can do or say whatever you want to. Mm-hmm. You don't have to consider the marketplace. Yeah. And this is what gives yeah. you artistic freedom. <clears throat> but... You just have to figure out what you want to do. You got to figure out how to do it, and then you got to go ahead and do it. Those are the three main. A few years, a few years back, around uh, I think it was 2012, I gave a speech to a group of people who were activists because I had worked in the U.S. Senate and I had been in the music business. It was a group called Rock the Vote. A lady named Erin Potts organized it at the time. She now lives in New Orleans, but was in the Bay Area at that time. And after I gave my talk, they had a kind of buffet. And a number of the artists came up to me. Some of them are famous names. And they said, well, we can't take on all those kinds of issues in motivating our audience to come out for politics. Because like the one that was mentioned twice to me was net neutrality. Verizon sponsors my tour. I can't possibly take on that issue. And... And, and you could you could feel the kind of things that you taught me when I read this music and politics. All those constraints were right there. They were right there. It's all right up in your face at all times. You can make a record that sounds like what you want it to sound like. You can try and make one that sounds like what you think somebody's going to buy. Those are the two of that's a different That's a different mission structure that they were going to buy it, it might be worthwhile to sacrifice your artistic integrity. But you're never sure what they're going to buy. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're going to buy something that the record company pays somebody $250,000 to promote to the radio stations. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, and you know this from uh, our past conversations, I took great pleasure in trying to help that Aretha Franklin film, Amazing Grace, reach an audience because that's when she went back to her roots and broke away from what I'll call the commodity game and really put some art out there for us. And uh, it was, was, what a a spectacular talent she was. I had somebody once ask me, I was riding down the July freeway, or one of these freeways, 
75. They named it Aretha Franklin. I forget which one, but it had a sentence in Aretha Franklin. It was named for her. You know, like they used to do it for the guys from the war, from the war heroes, and now they had Aretha Franklin. Oh, they named one after her. Oh, oh, that's outstanding. Nice. Well, that, how would I say? She was such a beacon. Such a beacon. And uh, I actually, uh, I was mentioning to you earlier, I read this beautiful master's thesis about Liverpool. And there was a Rodgers and Hammerstein song called You'll Never Walk Alone that became the anthem of the people at sports games in Liverpool. And when I came back home, I went to search, because Frank Sinatra, I, I, what was it, uh, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, I think, did the version that was played at the football stadium. But Sinatra did one, Elvis did one, everything else. And then I came across, in that Amazing Grace session, Aretha Franklin did a version of You'll Never Walk Alone. And geez, oh, did she take it to another place? And I was reminded once when somebody asked me, I was on a stage uh, about the film, and they asked me, was I particularly religious? And I said, well, not. My mother was a Scottish Presbyterian, uh, but I think uh, my dad was kind of an atheist. And uh, But I said, but there was this notion of music in my house that felt like something called the Holy Spirit. And the person in the audience said, well, what do you mean? I said, I mean, James Brown's feet, Bob Dylan's lyrics, Jimi Hendrix's guitar, Aretha's voice, and the social conscience in the compositions of Marvin Gaye. Those all feel like the Holy Spirit to me. <laughs> Amen. It was, that was all around us there in Detroit and, uh, and beyond. But I think, I think John, uh, once again, I, I, how would I say, I, I wanted to get together with you because I, I think you have so much to share. I want to turn all my 15,000 Young Scholars Initiative onto the insights and the works that you've provided us. You're, you, uh, but, but I also want to thank you for the way you've been a teacher to me throughout my life and how grateful I am for all that you've imparted so that when you when you say you tell the young people what are you going to be where are you going to go well, you got to pick like you were talking about the artists and stuff you're you're an echo that's in my mind every day of my life from the example you set so thank you thank you for your guidance well i appreciate it and i appreciate you having to help me with my foundation i'm setting up my foundation you know hoping that yes it will help my yes. works live on. I'm doing, they will. I'm, I'm doing sure all, my, all, in what, all my writings, my records, all my recordings. I'm giving it all to the foundation. Well, thanks for being here today. I'll uh, maybe right around the time of your birthday, I'll come back and we'll do another episode uh, right on the cusp of that party. We'll, we'll do a little virtual celebration. And I'll try to get I'll try to get on a plane and get to Detroit for the party myself. Well, that'd be good. I'd love to see you. Me too. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it.
And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing <laughs>